0: Please.
1: Truth seekers and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book Everything's on the One: The First Guide to Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and, Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg@funkinstuff.net. at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership the original drummer for Rufus featuring Shaka Khan Andre Fisher, who has also played on and produced more than 100 recordings for some of music's biggest stars and talents. They include Natalie Cole, Renee and Angela, the Isaac Brothers, Betty Wright, Gladys Knight, Nancy Wilson, Nina Simone, Patti LaBelle, Dr. John, Tony Bennett, and Frank Sinatra. It was with Rufus through 1977, during which time the group had four straight top five R&B albums. And produced funk and soul classics like Tell Me Something Good, You Got the Love, Once You Get Started, Pack My Bags, Sweet Thing, Dance With Me, At Midnight Hollywood and Everlasting Love. Prior to that, Fisher played with icons like Curtis Mayfield, Jerry Butler, Gene Chandler, and Eddie Harris. Later on, he became a record company executive and got involved with Academia. Andre, how are you? Thank you so much for joining the show.
0: I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for asking me.
1: I'm, I'm just fine. Thank you very much. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure. And uh, thank you so much. And where are you today?
0: I'm in St. Paul, Minnesota at a place called Schmidt's Artist Lofts. It used to be a brewery that they turned into a, a great artist lofts with 16 foot ceilings and and original double brick walls and all that kind of stuff. So I'm in one of those places. And also here they have studios, rehearsal rooms. They have uh, artist showcase rooms for their art and sculptures. And uh, we have art showings here. And the prerequisite to living here is you have to be in some form of of
1: art or culture. And how long have you been in that part of the country?
0: Um, I came back here, That's I think 2007, as as hired as Dean of McNally Smith College of Music. I came here from Los Angeles. I was born here. Uh, My mother was singing here and her water broke. Uh, uh, She was doing a gig here. And I was born in Minneapolis the following day, on December 26th. And my mom and dad were here. um, uh, My mom singing and my dad here uh, finishing up studies for uh, his master's degree in composition. And apparently there were some great composers that resided here and had something to do with the University of Minnesota. And we went back to Michigan and we lived in Nebraska and uh, Chicago and a couple other places. And then wound up back in Minneapolis. Uh, I think I did the second, third and fourth grade here. And then by the fifth grade, my dad moved us all permanently out to Los Angeles. I went to uh, Fauche Junior High, John Burroughs Junior High School, um, LA High, uh, Hamilton for one semester. And uh, a little bit to L.A. City College. And then I wound up going to college at Ohio State. And I went to Southern Illinois University. And uh, snuck into uh, Alan Dawson's class at Berkeley School of Music. Because I didn't have the money to pay to go there. <laughs> and uh, th- that's it. So I've been here since 2007. I was hired as a dean of a music college called McNally Smith College of Music. So I've been here, but I didn't give up my L.A. residency till maybe about 2014. And uh, because I had a son here, so I decided, well, I might as well be here permanently. And the rest of my family's uh, spread out between uh, Chicago, Monterey, California, uh, and Los Angeles. So that's where the rest of my kids are.
1: You have a tremendously rich uh, musical heritage in your family. Uh, yeah. Could you just summarize for the viewers uh, You know how you grew up with that? Um,
0: these are things I found out later. Uh, my uncle was Claire Fisher, who was a composer, pianist. Um, all the early recordings that he did when we moved to Los Angeles at the original NBC Studios and Gold Star and a lot of great studios there, my uncle would take me to. Uh, he did the high lows, uh, he was musical director and uh, Composed some things and produced. He did Cal Jader, he did George Shearing, he played with Bud Shank, Lorindo Almeida, um, Lee Connitz. Uh, It's just too many to remember. It's everybody I can think of. Uh, My dad played with Stan Kenton, Woody Herman, Harry James, Little John Beecher Orchestra. Uh, He was usually a band manager, or uh, they they got him for more than just his playing. He was usually second chair trumpet. He played trombone, he played bass and piano too. But he was an orchestrator. And so if they needed to change arrangements or orchestrate something, he was already a member of the band. I think that's the only reason they let me travel with him, because the other musicians couldn't bring their kids. So I, I think if my dad didn't have some kind of special purpose to the band. They wouldn't have let me come along with him. Uh, that didn't, it kind of pissed off the other musicians at times till I did favors. (laughs) Uh, but my mom was a vocalist. She sang with Preston Love, uh, which was a band leader from Omaha, Nebraska. And then he toured the country with Preston Love Peg Leg Bates review. And he also wound up as the mainstay, uh, uh, leader of the horn section uh, for the the Whiskey A Go-Go during the early 60s. And my mom sang with Preston Love. Then my mom sang with Lou Rawls. And she sang with his jazz choir. Then she did gigs on her own. She used to open for Ike Cole and Nat King Cole. And Sarah Vaughn was a friend of hers and Carmen McRae. These are people that stopped by my house as a child or we would go visit if I was traveling. Uh, Wow. my, My dad... My dad introduced me to Dolo Mamoroso, Lenny Tristiano, um, uh, everyone in the bands. I knew everybody from the Basie band through, through, uh, uh, through Harry James. I just knew all these musicians and their families. Um, I met great composers. To me, they were just you know friends of my peeps. There was no significance placed upon them because when your home has that much music in culture in it, that's what you get used to. Or somebody says, you know, you do so many things, Andre, it seems so convoluted. I said, not if you do it every day, it's just standard procedure. So, you know, plus I would hear the conversations after people left, you know, about uh, how, 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 uh, how drunk the piano player got and he was never gonna get hired. You know, so I I had all the info. Uh, My grandfather was president of Barbershop Quartets, Greater Michigan. He also owned a uniform factory. Uh, My grandmother was a choral director for, I think, three or four Presbyterian churches. My Aunt Suzanne was a piano teacher and vocal coach. My Uncle Dean was a bass player and, at one time, uh, one of the deans of the music department at Michigan State. And that's where my uncle Claire graduated from with his master's degree. My uncle Louis was a violinist. Etienne and Francois uh, were the Corsican with the French part. One played cello and one made cellos. Uh, so there was always something to do with, with some form of composition. And it, was, it, it wasn't talked about as a business, never, by any of the relatives. It was always talked about a love and tradition for the family. And also I went to a, a small town that had been um, founded along the river there in Canada by the Roussins, which is my grandmother's people. There's still a standing church and a big rock monument with the Roussins with the name of 50 or 60 people from my clan on this rock. So. It, a lot of stuff, man, and and all of them were fiddle players. So I tried everything else, football, I did all kinds of stuff and thought I was gonna go to college playing football. But um, music was, was, it wasn't the fact that it was strong, it was natural. It's like, that's what we did. My brother sings to this day. Um, You know, my kids, my son, uh, my eldest son is a record producer. Uh, my daughters sing, you know, my, my grandkids do stuff. My, my daughter Lyric Ella, her name is Lyric Ella, is my, uh, uh, one of my younger granddaughters. She's an excellent singer and a painter. So it's like those things actually helped us do all the rest, the math and the figuring this out, and the history. And it's funny because my, my parents and my, especially my uncle and my dad, um, they were know-it-alls. They were eggheads. They were like my version of nerds. They would have arguments about uh, uh, Patton and uh, Eisenhower and the fact that and uh, Montgomery and Rommel were all uh, Masons, you know. And then they talked about the Masons. Then they talked about Mesopotamia and the Moors. They knew so much about history and about uh, how countries had been formed and and uh, which countries had been connected and and uh, my father was always amazed that the the japanese were kind of racist towards the chinese and uh, he would ask the chinese man he said why are you messed why are you mad at the chinese that's your brother They just didn't the island just didn't pop up and you were here he said it was connected at one time he says that's your brother so is the korean he says stop it <laughs> my father my father was funny. He said, look, you're going to have problems because when my mom and dad were married, it was against the law uh, for, for them to be married. My mother was black and my father was white. And uh, when we would go rent, or rent a place, try to find somewhere to stay, we couldn't go in with him. Uh, or my mother could. not Or I'd be at a bus stop with my mom and someone would come up and ask me, was that my maid? So there's a lot of things I experienced from that too. So my parents raised me. They said, you're going to have problems from people of color because they're going to think you think you're better because you're fair. And then fair-skinned people or white folks won't like you because you don't act like what they think a black person acts like and nor do you know how to play basketball. And so, <laughs> so you're going to catch hell from all over the place. So they tended to make me more worldly and, and not so neighborhoodly. And I think that's why my father took me with him everywhere. Because by the time I was 10, I'd been to all the states in a couple countries and I wasn't particularly impressed. And he told me to be careful about aligning myself with man because he said, he said man is like Fred Flintstone with a tie on. He said, he's an idiot. He said, so be careful who you, what tribe you align yourself with that may doom itself for extinction and you had no vote in the matter. So I've kind of run my own path based upon that's the way my parents raised me. They raised me to be a paratrooper. They raised me to be able to exist in multiple environments. And yes, I do know what leaf to use to wipe my butt in the forest if I'm stuck there. And no, I won't get poison ivy. So it's those kind of parents. They prepared me for a lot of shit, okay, and that's how I attribute whatever my skills are now. Part of it is based upon the fact of the discipline my parents gave me to survive in in all kinds of environments, politically, socially, uh, financially, all those different ways and how the music business um, was equated to me by my father as just another American business. Don't put a mystique on it just because what they sell you like. He said, the business of pimping is the same. So I got into those conversations. So it was so funny to wind up as senior vice president of MCA records or when I was vice president for Quincy for, for Quest records of his jazz a and R. I I just laughed. I said, I know my dad is laughing. <laughs> But he said it was always easier to know what was going on instead of from the outside looking in. He said, just like a department store at Christmas time when you see all the fancy stuff in the windows. He said, that's well and good. But if that's your only view of the department store, he said, go around to the loading dock. He said, the loading dock smells like piss and there's cigarette butts all over the place. <laughs> yeah, so, That's
1: where the warts are.
0: Yeah, so the same thing happened to me working for record companies, the difference between what I thought they were doing and what it was, as opposed to being in a situation where I knew exactly what was going
1: on. That that reminds me, Andre, of when uh, my wife, who I mentioned, I don't think we were on air yet, but, um, you know, I took her from Long Island to Hollywood, you know, where I was living, and she'd never been there before. And she had all these impressions of being so glamorous and the glitz and everything And then, you know, I took her down, like, some of the seedy areas of Hollywood Boulevard, and it was a rude awakening for her. You know, she got to see all the grime and everything that's behind the glitz and the glamour, you know, like, kind of what you're talking about.
0: Yeah. It's like Oliver Twist. The street wasn't paved with gold. No. No, no. No, it reminds me me of Wizard of Oz. You know, the, the curtain accidentally moved, and they saw the old man in there pushing buttons. Yeah. That's the funny stuff. It's, anyway, that's, that's kind of the background I come from. And also um, meeting all these different people. Uh, I remember my dad taking me to meet uh, Duke Ellington. Duke, a lot of times, was staying in a hotel, which was usually in a black neighborhood because they still wouldn't let him, let the whole band stay in, in a white hotel. And uh, uh, we'd go visit him and he wore a Terry Cloth robe. usually he still had his shirt and tie and suspenders and pants on. He just put his robe on under that. And he entertained people and they'd be talking and folks he knew. And my dad took me there and that's when I met Billy Strayhorn too. And um, Duke liked Orange sherbet. And in those days it was that, you know, that round white cardboard container from back in the old days, the, the to-go stuff. And he'd always have that sent up and he'd eat this orange sherbet. And as a kid, I was pissed because he never offered me any. So my father took upon that, that every time musicians would come to visit us wherever we were living, like if it was Omaha, and they would come by the house and my mother would make baked Alaska and sherry chicken. And then I was the entertainment. I'd come out and he'd ask me questions about with his friends. Well, what did you think, you know, when I took you to meet Duke? And he knew... Uh, I was like a trained seal. I'd say, Oh, I like him, but he was selfish. He never offered me any ice cream. And everybody thought that was so funny. And after a while I started saying, dad, I don't want to do it anymore. Either that or give me 50 cents every time I do it. <laughs> but, uh, I remember the, the quirks and meeting different folks. I remember a, a piano player on the road bus with little John Beecher's band. And, uh, my father kept telling him, "You you can't keep drinking, and you can't you can't do any drugs, because that brings heat on the band." And uh, I guess wherever they played, it was NCO clubs, auditoriums, state fairs. Because what what some people think is jazz was dance music. Tony Bennett was popular music. Tony wasn't jazz. Even some of Nina Simone is not jazz. She sings popular songs. So what happens is uh, uh, these engagements uh, were actually kind of G-rated. I mean, everybody's wearing a tux or a suit. So when this guy got out of hand, my father told him as the band manager, if you get that way again, we're just gonna put you off the bus, you're done. We'll give you severance, you're finished. And I remember he didn't listen. And I remember in the middle of a friggin' cornfield in Iowa, they put this guy out on the highway. And I remember that too. So when people told me stories about James Brown f- finding his band for wearing the wrong shoes, I said, oh, that ain't nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but then... You know, I, I came up with the jazz and seeing all of that, and uh, and then popular music, and then high school. There was more influences. I went to high school with Al McKay, who was the guitarist from Earth, Wind and Fire. Jessica Cleves, who was one of the first singers with Earth, Wind, female singers with Maurice's first version of Earth, Wind and Fire that had Alexander Thomas on trombone.
1: This was in Chicago, Andre. No, where was this?
0: Los Angeles. LA High oh, Okay, uh, I lived off of uh, a Highland uh, right off of Highland right below Olympic um, near a street called Longwood and uh, we went we went to LA High and John Burroughs was right down the street from there that was on Wilshire and McCadden uh, my junior high and it was funny because even at junior high uh, I remember Ernest Borgnine's one of his relatives went there and he came to a, a Uh, a a function at the auditorium and a couple other actors, kids went there and they, they'd come and speak at the school. And that was my similar to your wife's story about seeing what it was like. But what happened for me is years later, my mother wound up being the assistant to Peter connect, who was the head of legal for Warner's films. So by the time I was in the 12th grade, I could go on the Warner's lot through all the sets. Because of my mother, she'd give me a pass and I'd just go everywhere.
1: I, I, uh, I went to uh, and graduated from Santa Monica High. Uh-huh. So not too far. I,
0: that's where my two middle kids graduated from. Oh, okay. They're from Samo too. We live, we live not that far from there. Yeah, so they, they went to Samoa. They requested. They both had been to private school up until uh, high school. And they didn't want to finish in private school because they said they, they wouldn't have the feeling of that prom, you know, looking over and there's like 18 kids from a private school. So they, so they both decided to go to Samo. They both graduated from Samo.
1: That's great, man. Get down. Yeah. Uh, Vi- go Vikings.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, we were the Romans. L.A. High was the Romans. And, and uh, we were all city everything. We, it was a pretty good football team. It did some serious damage over there. But anyway, Jessica went to LA High. Leslie Drayton went to LA High. That was Marvin Gaye's musical director, trumpet player. Uh, Carl Randall, saxophone player that was with Gerald Wilson's band. Um, Ted Murdoch, who was uh, one of the main trumpet players with Ray Charles's band. Harold Land Jr., pianist. His dad was Harold Land Sr., played with Clifford Brown and Max Roach. LA High. So I went to school with all these folks. And we had a terrible music teacher, but we had great musicians there. <laughs> so Truman Thomas went there. he's a piano player. And Truman wrote Stop On By and uh, other songs with Bobby Womack. And also, when Billy Preston was on the Shindig television show, he was playing organ in the house band for the show. And when Billy would get up to sing a song, Someone slipped in behind him on the B3 organ. Well, that was Truman. You know, he, he was in high school. So I watched the show just to see my friend from school play on television. And there was a show called Lloyd Thaxton Show out here in California, in California and a bunch of other shows. So it's like, you know, my, my earlier years was playing talent shows. Brenda Holloway. Uh, Her sister, Patrice Holloway, who I thought maybe sang as good or better than her sister. You remember Brenda Holloway? Yeah. Every little bit hurts. Every time I cry. Well, we had all these great people, man. So it's like between orchestra and band, we were all gigging. Okay, I toured till I was nine and a half or ten with my dad. And then by 14, I'm on the road myself on the weekend doing gigs.
1: Playing, playing drums?
0: Yeah. Well, first it was trombone. Trombone and trumpet, like my dad. But uh, the, the trumpet hurt my lip. It started not to agree with me. And the trombone, it, you know, it, if they wanted you for an R&B band, they wanted you to dance with your horn. No way. You're not going to make me mess my stuff up. So drum, I took up drums. Uh... But I always played what they call ranger's drums. Uh, if you solo my tracks, you can hear me humming the song. I don't consider myself a drummer, or I consider myself a musician. So I, I'm playing the song, I'm not playing beats. And uh, that's, that's kind of why some folks like my playing, or certain musicians, we tend to play well together because I'm like the catcher in the ballet dance. You're not gonna fall. Um, so it's like a dance and I, I got, I got good ears, you know, and plus any drummer that can read and, and knows how to play phrases is usually going to uh, do well for himself. A lot of guys would get mad at me because I could read.
1: Well, who are some of your drumming idols?
0: I didn't have idols. I had teachers or influencers. Had, uh, yeah. Uh, Frank Butler. From the coolest "Say Mama" album, John Coltrane, friend of my mom's, he'd come by and give me lessons, but he, it was infrequent because he was either because he was a junkie. Uh, Al Barti, the drummer uh, with uh, Lionel ha- Hampton, um, uh, Paul Humphrey, who played with Les McCann, wound up on the Lawrence Welk show, but Paul Humphrey's, uh, but Paul was like a Navy drummer. Uh, And then Clarence Johnston, who taught Raymond Pounds, who was a drummer with Stevie. Uh, A lot of different drummers that I got into. Then I got into James Levi. Uh, James was a drummer uh, with the early Whispers back in 1968, 69, up in San Francisco. Uh, Different people influenced me. Greg Enrico was Sly's drummer. Uh, I knew Sly when he was a DJ on K-San. And Tom Donahue talked him into forming a group, so I got a lot of mileage uh, and a lot of people that I know. Uh, There was always good drum, always some good drummers around. There was a drummer in Detroit, played a lot with Chuck Jackson. His name was Funky Foot Butch. Then the first drummer with the OJ's out of Cleveland was actually a jazz drummer. He played R&B, but he was a jazz drummer. Uh, his last name, I never found out. They called him Albino Jerry. And he could play the dance accent with the dance move, but never lose the pocket. It was like a big band drummer, knows the distance between one and two, and knows exactly when to hit with those horns. And he doesn't have to play the hi-hat to count. It's like in eight. So those are the kind of folks I hung with, jazzers, funksters, Jerome Braley played with Funkadelic for years. Before that, Jerome was with the Chambers Brothers. Before the five that, stair
1: steps, right?
0: well, that's, I did tours with the Impressions who were on Curtom, were on Curtis's label, and Jerome was playing drums. This was 1969. We did, th- we did 90-day tours of one-nighters from Henry Wynn's company out of Atlanta. Sometimes we'd drive six 700 miles to a place that the gig had been canceled. <laughs> and had to turn around and drive back to Atlanta. But that was with Mitty Collier. Uh, she did, I had a talk with my man last night, a very f- famous singer, um, uh, gorgeous George, this DJ, uh, uh, Archie Bell and the Drells, the Five Stair Steps, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. I mean, tours like that. And then after a while, the Winstons had that record called Color Him Father. Uh, did with the Winstons. And as soon as we come down south, it would be different groups that we'd hook up with uh, as far as that's concerned. And then we start being on tours where there was the Dells, the, the OJs, the uh, the Four Tops, and the Temptations, and the Stevie Wonder. And then, you know, after a while, I'd been on tours and had seen or played with everybody.
1: What, what was your personal favorite genre or genres?
0: It, it's hard to say because... You know, on, on the one hand, uh, you know m- my friends who knew who Cornell Dupree was and Richard T. had no idea who Klaus Ogerman was. So for me, the way I was raised, my parents exposed me to music and writers and composers that were old to them. So I've never been even with my peers as far as their view of, of foundation. A lot of my peers were too current and had no idea where things came from or didn't know the difference between a Texas shuffle and a Chicago shuffle, okay? Or, or the difference between there's more than one way to play a lava and if you go to Brazil, that's, that's what Carnival is all about. They're all having those neighborhood contests and there's, each neighborhood had their own cadence in certain areas of the country, certain styles, certain guitar players can play for me, and I can tell you where he's from. When I heard D'Angelo, when he first came out, I said, that's a boy who's played in church in the Carolinas. That's a boy who play played organ in church. Because he wasn't New Wave gospel like Midwest and West Coast are, because they're using substitution chords and the drummers, and it's almost like fusion, some of the gospel songs, Okay. Not, not Carolinas. That's it's more traditional stuff going on there. Some of the songs that they sing in church too. So it, it's it, it's that that kind of thing. The point is, is I've been everywhere and tasted a lot of things, and you remember those tastes, and you you log them all. They all become part of your vocabulary, and you call them up when you need them. So that's how I produce records. Uh, I, I have a I have a, a, a a vast vocabulary, and you just need the right situation to be able to to use to use that information. I, you know, I'm not photographic memory, but I still can draw for you the track sheet from Tell Me Something Good. You know, I know I can sh- tell you what the outboard was in the faded it. Maybe it's a curse. Maybe it's because I'm Capricorn. Hell, I don't know. But I've talked to Phil Collins about it. You know, I've talked to some other drummer producers like Maurice White, I knew well, and we all seem to know everyone else's part. That's the thing about drummers, you know, that most drummers know everyone's part. Michael Bland here, that played with the new power generation with Prince, he can write a chart out for you, okay? He can turn to the horn section and call out the fourth trombone player and tell him he played the wrong note in bar 52. People aren't used to drummers being that knowledgeable. So to me, um, there's a bunch of my drummer friends that I think make good producers. Uh, Someone who would be an excellent producer, although he doesn't know it, is Manu Cachet. He was the drummer with uh, uh, Peter Gabriel. Before that, he played with Michel Jonaise, which is an artist from France, who's kind of like their version of Neil Diamond. Uh, I took his place when I moved to France. I played with this guy, Michel, and then I had to listen to his past recordings of his drummer Manu Cachet. I said, well, where's Manu? He says he's now with Peter Gabriel. So I followed him and checked his music. And his influences were were more African and less European. And, it, you know, I remember hanging out with, the, with Sting at the Tarut Rock Festival in Brussels. Uh, I'd take the train from Paris and go to the festival because friend of mine, Bradford Marcellus, was playing with Sting at the time and Kenny Kirkland, piano player. And they had a French drummer who was shit because he'd lose stamina halfway through the song. And after listening to Stuart Copeland with Sting, it was hard to hear anybody else anyway. And then uh, I remember Bradford recommended to Sting uh, someone from New Orleans. I think it might have been Zigaboo Modeliste. Who played with the meters. The meters yeah. I think he recommended him but I, I wouldn't have recommended him because only because I know Sting's brain no reflection on Zigaboo but what Sting needed was Vinny and eventually he wound up with Vinny Caliuto. because you need somebody with Vinny's brain to play with Sting because Vinny's brain and Stuart Copeland's brain they're both freaking crazy. You need someone who thinks out of the box to to lift the parts. Because some sometimes, you know, Sting would do a few things, but it would be a little linear to me. It was ethereal, a little linear. It's floating, where um, Stuart would give the pulse. He would give that energy. And he'd stick that stick right up Sting's behind. He'd st- right on his ass. Stuart wouldn't rush, but he'd lift. It's not like everything got real fast. Sometimes some of the songs were faster at the end, but that's a natural occurrence. But sometimes there was just a lift and you got to imagine how big that sounded and there was only a couple people playing on stage. And some people don't know Jean Rousseau, the keyboard player from, from Canada, originally from Mauritius, was the one who played keyboard with Cat Stevens and he would play on some of those police gigs. Okay, so I wound up using him years later on a Dusty Springfield album, and I had to go find him in Montreal, out in a friggin' forest in some private house somewhere. I had to search for this guy, because she wanted him on her record. It took me two days to find this guy with a guy, and I got snowshoes on and shit. So I found him and brought him back. But he'd eaten himself into oblivion and I had to buy two first class seats because the, the, the dude didn't fit in one seat. So we I brought him back and then brought him to my house before I took him to the hotel. He cleaned my refrigerator out. So he had a whole salami. What the fuck? I said, are you here to play or to eat? You know, so anyway, but there's, there's been some interesting, interesting musicians that have made some glorious music. A good friend of mine just just passed away. I loved him so much, Mike Finnegan. Um, Finnegan, Finnegan, uh, I picked him one time because Natalie wanted to do a fundraising gig at the House of Blues. So I got uh, Dave Mason's drummer, Alvino uh, Bennett uh, to play drums. I got Reggie McBride on bass. I had uh, um, uh, Kastner, Andrew Kastner on guitar from Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. I had the Jack Mack and the Heart Attack horns, plus I added one or two others. Uh, I had Mark Hugenberger on keyboard and Mike Finnegan. And they played uh, uh, Corina, Corina. They played some blues and funky stuff. And then they, uh, do, da, do, do, do you know, I can, uh, uh, but I'm a woman, you know, that uh, they put a slow shuffle into I'm a woman, the, the, the Peggy Lee tune or whatever it was. And then it turned into Rocky Mountain Way.
1: <laughs> you know,
0: Finnegan sang and the place went nuts. This guy, if you saw him play, you'd be transfixed. And there was a keyboard player named Smitty from a group called Motherload. They had a record called uh, When I Die. When I die, I hope to be the kind of man that you thought I'd be. See, I remember the songs and the people. I remember uh, when I first met David Foster. He'd come from Canada. He'd been in a group called Skylark. Skylark had a lead singer named Donnie Gerard, who still should live there in Los Angeles. And uh, because she's a lady. Dream, dream, she's a child. Yeah, I remember that one. Okay, well, it was covered by New Birth. They covered the, Harvey Fuqua uh, covered it with the group New Birth, but the original was Skylark. That's the group David came from.
1: I bought that single as a kid, actually, the Skylark one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then Canada, too, that's a whole other story. Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. uh, You know, uh, I knew Bobby. I knew guys from Charles... Uh, 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 Charles and the Sidewinders, that was a group of uh, R&B musicians who liked white girls, so they wound up moving to Canada so they wouldn't get hung. And uh, they formed a band up there, Little Charles and the Sidewinders. As a matter of fact, J.C. Davis wound up playing in that band. He was the sax player on Please, Please, Please with James Brown. He came back to the United States to Columbus, Ohio, and he formed a house band at the Bottoms Up Club that backed up every group that came through Columbus. It was the top show club. Well, guess who wound up as the house drummer for J.C.? Me. That's what I played behind Solomon Burke and Mabel John uh, with this little Willie John's sister, the singer who died in prison. Okay, And Mabel sang with, she was one of the Raylettes. I can go on and on. And then one entertainer came there from Detroit, his name was Lewis Curry, he had a hit single on Well, who arranged his song was McKinley Jackson. That's the same guy who produced and did the songs on Chairman of the Board, and had the house band at the Cobo Hall in Detroit. It was called McKinley Jackson and the Politicians. That was the house band for Cobo Hall. McKinley's my best friend. He married Shirley Jones, one of the Jones girls. The Jones girls are the girls who sang behind Diana Ross. Then they had their own career. Knights Over
1: Egypt is one of their Right, friends. Dexter Wenzel. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, so in other words, we're all connected by like one person.
1: The six degrees of separation, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, my circle is, is a mofo. It's well, because I can pull them all back. I remember playing with Cornell Dupree on the Soul Show. Uh, which was a TV show in New York in 1968 and 69 with Jerry Butler, first of all, and then with Curtis Mayfield and Impressions. You know, I remember demoing uh, for Kurtom, uh, Patti LaBelle, that Curtis brought her to town. He wanted to sign her. And that Curtis was smart. He went and got Johnny Pate. The arranger of all the early Impressions hits brought him to Chicago. We totally recut all the Impressions tunes so Curtis would own the masters. So if somebody wanted to license or use the tunes, he, he was pushing his. And the guy who helped him do it was Eddie Thomas, who was a top promotion man and managed a few groups too. But Eddie Thomas, that's where Kurt Tom came from. And Kurtom was distributed by Buddha Records, which was who? Neil Bogart, all right? So Neil had Tommy Smothers, Curtis Mayfield, Motherlode, the group I told you from Canada, um, Vic Damone and and a couple other people. Then after that, he formed the Casablanca Records and then signed Donna Summer and all those folks. So it's like, I, I go on and on with that stuff. I, I I had record companies always calling to hire me after I played on a record or or produced a record to, to run A and R departments, which I finally gave into some you know some years later. And all the Rufus singles were picked for me. I would give my vote and try to make sure that that single got released. James Gatson was my was my go to. I'd go to Gat and say, Gat, here's some new songs we just did. I got, I got all of them here. So. Yeah, well, well, those songs
1: there. That's the first one.
0: Yeah, that, that's with uh, uh, Al Seiner and Ron Stockert and Dennis Belfield. Those were the main mainstay. Yeah. But man, that was a good band because those guys turned me on to Sons of Chaplin. They turned me on to Lydia Pence and Cold Blood. Those were the things they were listening to. I turned them on to Maha Vishnu. You know, I turned them on to uh, funky jazz, fusion jazz. I turned them on to other stuff and they turned me on to, uh, uh, I, I became a hardcore uh, uh, Almond Brothers fan. And Butch Trucks, I wound up knowing all those guys, you know. So we had a good exchange uh, in that band, the first band. I think one more album, we would have kind of figured it
1: out. How did, was Bob Monaco involved right on that one from the get go? Bob,
0: Bob Monaco helped us get signed. His name was on there as producers so he could collect two points. He didn't do shit on the records. He half the time he didn't even come. Or he, if, he, if he was talking to a woman, he'd bring her by to show him this is what he did for a living. Uh, he wasn't musically involved. He was a good guy. He helped us, he, he, he talked for us at the label, he helped us get the deal. But as far as a producer, no, he wasn't that. The the group produced itself.
1: How long were you with the band before Shaka Khan? You were there before Shaka Khan became part of it, right?
0: Yeah. The the singer was Charles Colbert and Paulette, Paulette McWilliams. Uh, I was there, what? I started in, I think it was 72. I just finished with Tennyson Stevens. I played a little bit with Amma Jamal. Uh, I played with a k- couple of different people. That's after I left Jerry Butler. I went with Jerry Butler after I left the Impressions and then toured all over again. And a lot of times uh, we'd back up other folks with Jerry's band. Uh, I remember backing up Gladys Knight, and some other folks that eventually years later, we laughed about it in the office because they were on the label I was vice president. So um, I remember 72, uh, My mentor is Richard Evans who was a producer. He did uh, um, Hang On Sloopy or or In Crowd for Ramsey Lewis. He did Feel the Fire, P.O.O. Bryson, Mr. Melody and all these songs for uh, uh, Natalie Cole. Uh, Richard Evans was Dinah Washington's last bass player and I lived in his basement in Chicago and he, he taught me orchestration and he made me a good producer and he made me play on productions he was doing. I played on Ahmed Jamal because Richard was producing his record and I wound up playing on it. So it's almost like he made me do shit. (laughs) So Richard was my, Richard was my mentor and he knew Charles Colbert with Rufus because Rufus also did jingles for Leo Burnett ad agency because Charlie Colbert had a relationship with him. Plus Rufus had been the American breed before it was Rufus. They had pop hits, Bend Me, Shape Me, and I think one other song. So they'd already been on American Bandstand. They already knew the ropes, so to speak. And Charlie had a deal with, uh, uh, with Leo Burnett, and then he had a deal with Barbara Proctor, the first black woman to have a very large ad agency there in Chicago. Everything from Boone's Farm Wine to Greyhound she had. And Charlie wound up getting some of the work and he'd have Rufus do it. So when I joined, first of all, I went to a club one night, I think it was Rush Up or Rush Over in Chicago, because Richard said, Charlie called me, said they needed a new drummer. I said, I've never heard of Rufus. He said, go check him out, go sit in, all right? So I went down that night, I met Charlie. I met uh, Paulette, I met Ron Stockard, I met Dennis Belfield, I met Al Seiner. I recognized Al and uh, the drummer Leo from American Breed. Same with Charlie. He was the black guy with the handlebar mustache. He was a bass player. So they said, well, you know, here's a couple, do you know this song or do you know that song? And because the drummer was getting ready to, I think, go run his uncle's car dealership, something was gonna happen that he was leaving his drummer's chair, okay? And uh, so I sat in that night and I guess whatever I played or however I played it, everybody was okay, cool. He's the guy. So I called Richard back because Richard's the one sent me to Charlie. So Charlie and I got tight and then I started going to rehearsals with them. And at that time, they just crossed over from Ask Rufus to Rufus. At first, they were Smoke. After American Breed, they were called Smoke, and then they went into Ask Rufus, which was from a, from a, a magazine article in, in Popular Mechanics. It was a, a thing called Ask Rufus. That's where they got the friggin' name from. Wasn't from Rufus Thomas, from Memphis. So anyway, I'm rehearsing with these guys. Ron Stockard to me was like, he was, he was, he was like Elton John, you know, but only a little bit more country. These were very proficient, and well-playing musicians. Each of them could arrange, each of them were very strong, you know, in what they did. And uh, I I sat with that, and at the time, they were the the top club band in Chicago. They worked constantly. They had two Dodge Polaro nine, nine passenger wagons, brand new, an equipment truck, and two roadies. What? Okay, so I was like, Oh, this is professional. This wasn't like you know going doing a a casual on the weekend. And they worked a, a Red Lion Inn's and they do Bloomington and they they do Shuler's and and they do all these great places. So I was thought that was great. I was making three sometimes four hundred dollars a week, which was good money. Then.
1: What were was, the set What were the set lists like? Uh, covers, originals, mix.
0: It was a mix, but there started there was there was a bit more originals than covers and and that that's kind of where they kept leaning especially because of uh, ron stocker and uh dennis belfield same with al but i'd say more from dennis and ron they were they were headed somewhere and that meant that they had to make new music and we were always rearranging stuff it's that we it may have sounded the same song, you knew it, but something had slightly changed. And I brought another element to them, and they said it swung more. Um, they said it it, it felt different uh, when I joined because, again, as I said, I was playing the songs. I wasn't playing the beat because, you know, I I wasn't I wasn't into Ginger Baker. You know that that wasn't my cup of tea. I was more into Alan Dawson or or uh, 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 John Bonham you know I, another, another kind of musicality but anyway uh, so I spent a lot of time rehearsing with these guys and we rearranged things and made up stuff and then the whole thing is okay we're at this level now we need to try to go get a record deal because they'd had a record deal earlier where a guy named Sandy Linzer had produced them And at the time, Willie Weeks was the bass player. And uh, they'd they'd done some songs, but Sandy Lenzer did, I'm a native New Yorker, a group called Odyssey. Yeah. Well, Sandy's records all sounded like Sandy. So what Sandy would do is get different groups to be the vehicles for Sandy. Because to me, I thought all of his productions sounded the same. So he did the record on, on uh, Rufus, and there was a couple tunes on there, but nothing happened with it. And so they, they knew they, should get, they wanted another record deal because we were putting in too much work. And when you start putting in that much work developing, it kind of goes beyond your, your club gig. You know, when you're rehearsing and it's not for your club gig because you, you're trying to create new music and also those are the poorest times for groups is when, when they when they close themselves off from from the club work and start concentrating on just making a demo or a record then 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 you start going on hard times again because there's not a constant flow of money coming in you know and most americans live to what they make they don't save shit you know you 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 you, you spend what you make and musicians are no different so uh, What happens at that point is uh, thought about how to contact other record companies. And at the same time too, uh, Paulette was talking about leaving, uh, saying that she was gonna do something else. And there was a couple of different explanations for that. I didn't totally get into it because actually Charlie was closer to Paulette than I was, Charles Colbert. And, Paulette, you know, we were bandmates and we were cordial, but it's like I didn't hang out with Paulette, you know. And she was neat and clean and and it, it was kind of hippie influences like wearing a fringe jacket, but it was too stylish to be totally hippie, okay. So Paulette was always neat and she always looked very well kept, okay. And, uh, I went to a club I would frequent called the Pumpkin Room on the south side of Chicago. And sometimes that's where Tennyson played, the pianist I played with a couple of years earlier. And uh, I'd go to the Pumpkin Room and this lady named Josephine was the manager or ran the club. And on certain nights there were other bands there. And I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesdays. It was a group called Lock and Chain that played. And they had a drummer named Scotty Harris. Scotty Harris, I think, was Smokey Robinson's drummer at the time. And Scotty put a band together for these Wednesday nights at the Pumpkin Room. And there was this little disheveled girl uh, uh, who was a minor uh, singing with Lock and Chain. But half the set, she was taking tickets at the door because you worked off the door. So she only sang, you know, five, six tunes a night. Maybe more because the rest of the time she was taking tickets. Okay, that was shock. A vet, we knew her as a vet, a vet Stevens. And uh, I saw her a couple times and I talked to Scotty. I said, Scotty, serious chops, do you see that? Because I come from a f- my mother's a singer, okay. so I'm, and all I've ever played behind is vocalists. So I heard something. And also I'm in that head mode of creation mode because the whole band is now trying to go to another place. So we were all in that headspace, and knowing that Paulette was leaving. And um, I, I just
1: kept hearing,
0: I heard it. You know, there's certain things you see or certain things you sense and nobody has to tell you, it's like, oh yeah, okay. It's like being a sentinel. When you're, when you're a musician, or even if you just like music, there's certain things you'll hear and you'll go, oh man, that's the shit. It's just innately. So when I heard her voice, I said, this is different. She had a proclivity of hearing thirds and fourths. She didn't always hear triads. This was not somebody raised in a Baptist church. It wasn't that kind of gospel. She had another way to it. Only thing bothered me is certain high notes. She would force it because she wasn't trained. So she would yell it. It would be a little louder than it should have been, whereas maybe Vesta Williams or or somebody else didn't have as much energy to get there because they were more trained to get to the the register. But she's something about her, and she looked like a little hippie. her her, she 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 did not smell good her hygiene was not great uh i could see what the potential was but i heard the voice more than i actually saw how she looked at the time
1: there's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview just continue on to the next part of the episode also be sure to subscribe to this channel if you've already done so please share it with friends and become a member by joining truth and rhythm on patreon or consider donating at funkandstuff.net. Thank you very much.